0: If you would, please open your Bibles. We have Bibles in the pews for a certain reason, so they can be used. Please open them, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to be reading some verses in uh, Mark 10, 17 through 31. And we're going to look at what uh, most people know as the rich young ruler. And when we look at that today, um, we're going to look at how that relates to Jesus and money. And I pray that what we study this morning will transform our lives in days ahead, that when it comes to money, and really for all eternity, um, it'll help us out. We're about to read the story of a rich man who approached Jesus asking him about eternal life. But I want us to have open minds and open hearts to what the Word of God teaches us today. When we hear the word rich, we usually think of people who have more money than we do. And that person person may be rich because he has more money than us. This means that we rarely perceive ourselves as rich. Because we can always think of somebody richer. There are varying levels of riches around us and varying levels of riches in the church for that matter. But we all need to realize that if we have clean water, sufficient food and clothes, a roof over our head at night, access to medicine, a mode of transportation, even if it is public transportation an opportunity for work and the ability to read a book, then relative to billions of people around the world, we are extremely rich. And I appreciate Brent's prayer where he said we are abundantly rich with the blessings and just with what we have in our life. So we are extremely rich. Economic professors Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert observe how the standard of living essentially among, essentially common among us is extremely uncommon in human history. In their words, they say, at no time in history has there ever been greater economic disparity in the world than at present. Speaking specifically about present-day Americans, they write, by any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth. I say that, of course, not to make us feel guilty, but simply to open our eyes to the reality that when most people in the world, even throughout entire history, hear the word rich, they picture us Americans. Me, you, even the average, ordinary, middle-class working Americans are extremely wealthy people in a world surrounded by billions of extremely poor people. Even as there are different and varying economic levels in in our gathering today, let's realize that for the most part, we are all extremely rich. This means that this story has a particularly significant implications for our lives, for my life and for yours. So let's read the story in Mark chapter 10, and then I want to look at uh, eight points of truth that we can learn from this about what Jesus talks us about, Jesus and money, that are very different from what we are taught in the world today. So Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my mouth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way. Sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astonished, saying to themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father and mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So. Our first point we want to notice is Jesus' call to salvation demands complete surrender. So picture this. A guy comes running to Jesus and bows down to him. He's eager. He's young. He's rich. He's intelligent. And he's influential. And some might consider this guy to be a prime prospect to be a follower of Christ. I mean, if he did, think about all the good things that he could do for the cause of Christ because of his wealth. He's asking, how can I be saved? And that's what this text is all about. It's about eternal life, salvation, entrance into the kingdom, into God's kingdom. And these terms are used uh, multiple times in our passage. Jesus says to him, here are the commandments. Go, sell all you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me. This is eternal life. And the man leaves. Why? Why? Because he's not willing to surrender his possessions to Jesus. Did you hear the man's language that he said? uh, He says he calls Jesus a good teacher. And um, apparently this man was willing to have Jesus as a teacher to respect. But not necessarily as a Lord to obey. And this is so much a picture of what passes as Christianity today. So many have come into a so-called Christianity through an invitation to obey the gospel to have never been confronted with the reality that Jesus is Lord before whom we lay our lives down, including our possessions. I fear that many are okay with looking at Jesus as a teacher to respect, but not as a Lord to obey. And they call it Christianity. But we need not be fooled. According to the Bible, we are not a Christian if we are not looking to Jesus as Lord of our life. In Romans 10, verse 9, it says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So when we confess Jesus as the Son of God, we automatically are confessing Jesus as Lord of our life. It says, If you confess Jesus with your mouth, that he is what? A respectable teacher? No, it says, Lord. Jesus is to be Lord of our life. In Luke nine twenty three, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So he is telling him to die to himself and follow Jesus wherever and however I lead you, no matter what the cost may be. In Luke 14, verse 33, it says, "Any anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So, based on the words straight from Jesus' mouth, Do we die daily to all we are and renounce all that we have to declare all all of our allegiance to Jesus as Lord of our life? Jesus does not play games. He doesn't play games with us. He doesn't give us any pass that he doesn't give other people in this world. The same rules that happened back in the first century apply to us today with what Jesus expects from us. He's asking the man here in Mark 10, do you really want to follow me? Or do you have, or do you want to say that you follow me, me and feel good about yourself, yet you are not willing to give up all that you have? Jesus knows this man's heart, and he knows our hearts. Point number two: Jesus' call to salvation involves radical commands. So when we look at Mark. uh, Chapter 10, 21, we see five commands in one verse. He says, Go, sell, give, come, and follow. That is a loaded verse. There are two common errors when it comes to these commands in this passage that uh, we sometimes get mistaken. The first error is when people try to universalize these and basically saying that every follower of Jesus has been commanded to sell everything they have and give to the poor. But we know that's not the case. At least a couple of disciples in this passage who we know had abandoned much uh, of their, what they've known to follow Christ still had, likely had a home and had boats or some kind of material support. Obviously, following Jesus does not mean that you can no longer own private property or possessions or have a job. So many of us breathe, can breathe a, you know, a little bit of sigh of relief when we hear that. But we need to be careful because that leads to the second common error of how people understand this. Some people universalize these commands to try to apply them to everyone, but then other people minimize these commands. Basically, they think Jesus would not call us to do this, but in reality, if this story is teaching us anything, it teaches us that Jesus does call some people to sell everything, and they have, and give it to the poor. That's what he did with this man back in Mark 10. In other words, Jesus could say could have a command for us that we maybe think, eh, he doesn't mean that. In fact, um, there was a commentator who said on this passage that Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all their possessions, give, com- uh, give comfort only to the kind people to whom he would issue that command. So if we are comforted where we are at today, comfortable in how we're sitting, we need to be careful on how we are thinking because that could lead us into some trouble. Let's not be prone to minimize Jesus' commands. Sometimes we'll take a passage like this and we'll say, well, that's not really what Jesus uh, meant. And that's, uh, this man needed to be, to be willing to sell all he had. The only problem with that is that that's not the interpretation. That's not what was true. Jesus was telling this guy, you got to get rid of everything to come follow me. The stuff that is important to you, the stuff that that um, would cause a barrier, that's what Jesus wanted to him to get rid of. And if that's what Jesus meant, that's what Jesus would have said. This is where we need to really be careful to not adjust Jesus' teaching to fit what we think. We'll do that here and there with other passages like um, from uh, Luke 10 and Luke 14 and we'll say what Jesus really meant was, and that's where we need to pause and be careful. This is where we are subtly giving into temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus that we're a little more comfortable with. That's a danger that we need to be careful of. We've created a nice, middle-class, Central Californian version of Jesus who doesn't mind our materialism Or who would never call us to give everything away. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced to avoid dangerous extremes. And for that matter, we think Jesus is somebody who wants us to avoid danger altogether. And if that's the case, if we avoid danger altogether, how is the gospel supposed to get spread to people in dangerous lands? Jesus calls for radical commands sometimes and extreme danger to go into places that... um, you know, where the gospel is not wanted at all. He is a Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out a nice Christian spin on the American dream. That's how we think sometimes. But we need to realize what we're doing. We are molding a Jesus into our image. We are making Jesus into someone who looks and thinks like us. Without even knowing it, we are in real danger. As people who have molded Jesus into our image, now we gather here on Sunday, sing our songs, worship uh, this version of Jesus we've created in our image. And the reality is we're not actually worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we are worshiping ourselves. And we're calling it Christianity. We cannot minimize Jesus' commands. This is the Jesus we follow, and His commands often go totally against the grain of the way the world thinks and the way we are wired to think. So let's put these true, um, uh, truths together and look at, at the question we need to ask ourselves. Do we declare allegiance to Jesus as Lord of our life, so, such that we would be willing to do everything he says for us to do? When it comes to money specifically, are we looking for Jesus for some advice in our life, or are we looking for Jesus for sole leadership in our life? And there's a significant difference in those two ways we look at Jesus. Will we follow him when his word goes against everything our affluent culture tells us to do? Jesus' call to salvation demands complete surrender and it involves radical commands. And please don't miss this because I mean, some may be tuning me out already and, and, um, If anything I'm saying does not square with the Bible, please tune me out or talk to me afterwards. But I want to make sure that what I say this morning is absolutely square with what Jesus teaches us. So we need to ask ourselves, does what I say square with what Jesus is saying? Or maybe on a deeper level, does my life square with what Jesus is asking us? Point number three, Jesus calls us to give sacrificially to the poor because he loves us. Mark 10, uh, 21, includes radical commands for this rich man, which can almost seem cold when they come out of Jesus' mouth. It's like he goes right for the jugular of this guy's heart. He knows exactly where this guy's weakness is at. And Jesus goes right for it. It can seem hard, but don't miss the beauty of the passage that we see here. In the beginning of verse 21, it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. Jesus loves rich people. This guy was rich, so Jesus loves rich people. Like you and me, enough to tell us the truth. This is so important to hear. Jesus is not giving this rich man an ultimatum because he doesn't care about him, because Jesus wants the worst for him, because Jesus wants to make his life hard and miserable. No, no, it's it's because Jesus is giving this rich man these commands because he wants the best for him. Jesus demands complete surrender and gives radical commands. Why? Because Jesus loves you and I. He knows better than we do what is best for our lives. So we need to stop being prone to pride and thinking what we know is best for us. Jesus knows what's best for us. In Luke 12, 33, Jesus says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. And he doesn't just say this to one guy. There was, it wasn't an isolated incident. He says this to all his disciples in Luke 12. But um, right before this verse, in verse 32, it says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, let's look at this verse real quick. In one verse, we have three pictures of God and Jesus in our life. Jesus said that he is a shepherd who protects you, we are his little flock. And two, God is a Father who loves us, who takes pleasure in loving you. And three, God promises a kingdom, his kingdom, which is the church. So the key to overcoming materialism is believing that Jesus and his plans for us is so much better than our plans that we have for ourselves. Jesus is better than money. He's better than more things, than nicer and newer clothes, than bigger and better possessions. Jesus is better. Jesus calls us to give sacrificially, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. He's not telling us this because he wants our lives to be miserable, but because he wants our lives to be good. Jesus wants a life for you and I that is better than the best things the world has to offer. And if only we would believe what the word of God tells us. That's really hard for us to believe sometimes, that what Jesus is telling us in the Bible is better than what we think that is better for us. Number four, we need to understand our use of money and possessions in the context of redemptive history. Now, that is a big bullet point. And you may ask, what in the world does that mean? And I'm glad you asked. So um, when we hear this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, we need to put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. When Jesus says it is difficult for all those who have wealth... To enter the kingdom of God. The Bible says the disciples were astonished or amazed at his words. They were shocked. Jesus says it again in verse 24 and 25. Then in 26 it says that the disciples were greatly astonished. They were astonished but now they were greatly astonished. That's like ratcheting up a few levels. They just couldn't believe what was coming out of Jesus' mouth. So why? Why were they so astonished or greatly astonished? And the answer goes back to part of the Old Testament history. So think about in the Old Testament, God had always promised to bless His people for materially for their obedience to Him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, over and over again, uh, there are examples of that. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 6, God says, Now it shall come to pass. If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I have commanded you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of, your Lord, of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground, and the increase of your herds. The increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. God is promising to bless his people with abundant material prosperity for their their obedience. And this continues. Just think about the extravagant wealth that uh, was promised David and given to Solomon. Now think about why. Why why did God do that? It was because God was establishing his people in a physical land as a nation with a temple that was constructed and designed to display God's glory among other nations and among all nations. Now, when we get back into Mark 10, a rich man who had strictly followed God's law ever since he was a kid, saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him to sell everything Give to the poor. That's why the disciples were shocked. Because everything they they had known about how uh, God rewarded his people in the past in the Old Testament, Jesus totally flips it on its side and upside down. So, if we look at the story of the Bible, we realize that the passage represents a major shift in redemptive history, the story of God bringing salvation and redemption to the world. And from this point on, really from the point Jesus comes into the New Testament, material reward on earth for spiritual obedience will never again be promised to God's people. We can go through the entire New Testament, and we will not find any promise of abundant material possessions in this world for spiritual obedience to God. It is not there. And it's so important that we... uh, uh, Understand those shifts that happen from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God was working through one nation. In the New Testament, God is working through his church that is gathering and multiplying among all nations. In the Old Testament, they gave money to build a temple for the display of God's glory. And in the New Testament, we give money to the church for the spread of the gospel in all nations. Some often view the church as a building which completely misses the point of the New Testament teachings when denominal churches sometimes um, have, they, they call it building campaigns, where they want to raise a bunch of money for a building, and they use Old Testament passages to support that. Bring your money to the temple, soul, or bring your money so we can build a, a new building. But nowhere in the New Testament are we ever told to construct a building, a physical building. We are never told to construct a building. That's not saying that the buildings are bad. The buildings that we worship are bad. We're obviously enjoying the comfort of this building here this morning. But the church is not the building, the church is the people, the body of Christ. And while we're thankful for this building to gather and worship in, this is no temple. This building is not a temple. This is why our priority should not be on having great buildings. But on building a congregation who is here for each other, helping one another, and spreading the gospel to all lost souls. That's where our focus should be. From the moment Jesus comes, we can search the entire New Testament. We will not find any promise of material possessions in this world for spiritual obedience to God. Instead, we will find the exact opposite. We'll find commands. To, uh, and exhortations to give, to sell and sacrifice possessions in this world. is so significant because so many Christians, uh, even entire denominations and networks of churches around the world are still operating under Old Testament views of wealth and possessions, teaching that God blesses our obedience by giving us stuff in this world. But Jesus, Jesus never once teaches that. We find it nowhere in the New Testament. We find something completely different and wonderfully different, so much better than that. It's not that God, you know, messed up the Old Testament. That's not what happened, and he decided to change his mind uh, in the New Testament. It's, it's all the bigger, all part of his big picture, big plan. Uh, the Old Testament always points to a much greater plan for the people of God and giving and sacrificing for the spread of the gospel among nations. And we get to be a part of that plan. We are part of that. It's a very different way to live, and it's a very different way that Christianity is sold a lot in this in this country and in this world. Sometimes that we see. Number five, we desperately need to realize the deceptive, dangerous, deadly nature of desire for money and possessions. Most people in our culture and some people in the church don't believe that that. Jesus said what he said in this passage. And when we hear Jesus say that wealth can be a barrier to having eternal life, we just don't want to believe it sometimes. We have so convinced ourselves that wealth, affluence, comfort, and possessions are his blessings. That's the blessing category we get. But Jesus just said here in Mark 10 that wealth can be a barrier to God, a barrier to what matters most in the in our life. I want to be clear. I don't want to... Uh, The Bible doesn't teach here or anywhere else that wealth in and of itself is bad. The Bible doesn't teach that money or wealth or possessions are evil. But the Bible does give strong warnings to us. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, it says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing withal, we should be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That is a picture of simple living. That is all that we need. Simple living. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation or into a snare. The Bible teaches us that it is a trap. The constant desire for more and nicer and newer and better is like drinking seawater when we think about it. We're thirsty on the sea. We think, man, that water looks good. Been out here floating around for a few days. I really need that water. And... Um, we, we don't realize that seawater has a high concentration of salt. So the more we drink, the actually, the more thirsty we become. And the more we drink, the sooner we'll be dehydrated. And if we keep drinking, we'll get headaches, dry mouth, low blood pressure, a rapid heart rate, and eventually we'll become delirious, go unconscious, and we'll die. It's amazing. You, you see water and you think, that's going to help me out here. That's what I need. But as you drink it... Unbeknownst to yourself, we are killing ourselves. And that's a picture of materialism. The more and more we go after money and possessions, the more they will kill our soul. And we won't even realize that it's happening. God is saying materialism is deceptive, dangerously, dangerous and ultimately deadly. And deadly is not too strong of a word here that is being used as well. So God just said in his word that the desire for riches plunges people into ruin and destruction. And that's just the desire for it. So what about when we have it? What does that do when we have the riches that we have? I mean, what other words does Jesus have to say for us to be warned that desiring and having riches is hard and can be a big deterrent into getting into heaven, making it into heaven? God says, run, don't walk Run from the desire for riches and the love of money. We need to realize the deceptive, dangerous, and deadly nature and desire for money and possessions. Number six. Jesus doesn't want to take away our pleasure. He wants to satisfy us with his treasure. So back to Jesus' words to the rich man in verse 21. Uh, listen closely what it says here. It says, Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. So, we've been talking like this is a passage, is a complete call to sacrifice, which it is in ways, but not ultimately. Because we hear what Jesus said. He's not calling this man away from treasure. Jesus is calling him to treasure, to the treasures of heaven. That only can be obtained through Jesus. There's almost a tinge, a little bit of self-serving motivation here. Jesus is saying, give away, then get something better. Jesus is not saying, stop caring about treasure. Jesus is saying, start caring about real treasure. Things that really matter. So what are we going to live for? Short-term treasures that we cannot keep or long-term treasures that we cannot lose? When we put it this way, we realize that materialism is not just deceptive, dangerous, and deadly, but another word I thought about was materialism is actually dumb when we think about it. One man said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is the most basic investment principle. If we have a stock that will yield a little treasure for a little time and have a And we have a stock that will yield a lot of treasure for all time. Which one are we going to invest in? Jesus gives us a simple financial sense to what matters most in our lives. Jesus is calling us to treasure. And um, Jesus, you know, he just—he always has our best interests in mind. He's telling us exactly we have treasures in heaven. For all who are Christians here, we want... Jesus more than we want stuff. That's why we have to look at it. That is the curse. Sometimes it's what's the curse of uh, prosperity gospel that we hear today. It's being sold all over America. Prosperity gospel. It says, come to Jesus and get wealth. Come to Jesus and get good health. Come to Jesus and get this and that. And it is prevalent all over the place. And we don't want to miss the point. When we come to Jesus, we come to him To get Jesus. That's who we are coming to Jesus for to get. Is to get him. And only him. He provides everything. He is better than all the best things this world has to offer. He says come and follow me. Number seven here. The cost of discipleship is great. But the cost of non-discipleship is far greater. So does it cost to follow Jesus? Yep. Absolutely it does. It costs everything we have. But just ask, what if we don't follow Jesus in total surrender like we're talking about here? What's the cost there? I think we can all think about that and think that it is far, far greater cost. The cost of not following Jesus, of not completely surrendering to Him and radically obeying Him will be great. In Mark 10, of, in In verse 29 and 30, it says here, So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. Who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time? So Jesus, uh, I want to notice a word here. This word hundredfold. Jesus says here, we can underline it, highlight it, circle it in our Bibles Jesus is saying here, in me, you will have a hundred times more what you have now. We don't have to wait for it. He gives us all that we need. And that doesn't sound costly. That sounds compelling for us to follow him. Jesus has something better for us in this world. Better than what the world says is best for us. And if we will trust him and obey him... Uh, uh, he will give us all that we need. And this leads us to number eight, our eighth point. Our lives will count on earth only when our eyes are fixed on heaven. Now and then, Jesus says, in the age to come, eternal life. And we've talked about some, some ideas about money that are not often thought about in the way we, we look at them, at least according to our world. And sadly, some Christians may have that same kind of view. But we don't want to miss this point. The key to sacrificial giving and living like this is realizing that this world is not our home. If only we would realize that this is not our home. Uh, An illustration that we want to maybe think about that I was thinking of, um, imagine that our home is in Australia and we've come to visit to the United States for a month where uh, we will live in a hotel that has everything that we need in this hotel. Imagine that there's a rule that we can't take anything back with us, back to Australia, back to where we live, except for money. You can earn money in America and you can send deposits back to the bank in Australia. Would you take any money you would make and buy expensive furnishings and extravagant wall hangings and put them up in your hotel room? Would you you focus on making that hotel room as immaculate as possible? Of course not, because we can't take any back home with us. So if we're wise, we'll cover our needs here. And if we don't invest money in in the hotel room, you'll send it on ahead. I mean, we need to understand, we're only here for a little while. Um, The longest, you know, what is, I don't know what the average life expectancy is, 70, 80, 90 years. We just had a sister who just passed away at the age of 100. That's not very long enough when you think about 10 trillion years. And eternity will just have begun. So our hope and our treasures, we need to be laying up in heaven. So during the short days here, it's like a mist, like James 4, 14 says. And we are bombarded with the temporary stuff to get stuff in this world, to make yourselves comfortable in this world. But God, who knows all things and knows what is best for you and I, never tells us that. He actually tells us the opposite, as we've noticed before. God says, fix your eyes on another world. Don't store up treasures on earth. It won't last. We need to store our treasures up in heaven. That will last forever. So let's take our focus off this temporary life. It's just a temporary place. In an instant, you and I are, could be standing before God to give an account for how we've spent the time and the money and the gifts and the resources that we've had here And when that moment comes, will we not wish we had acquired more stuff and lived more comfortably here? Or will we wish we had given more of our lives and the abundance of our resources, making them count for the spread of the gospel and the glory of God in a world who needs Him? So starting right now and around us and and, and extending far from us we need to not waste our lives let's not miss what matters most and let's ultimately not miss Jesus so is it your is your thought and desire for money and comforts of this life a barrier to what Jesus asks from us looking at your life right now where you sit are you the rich young ruler if Jesus told you to give everything you had would you if you are, if you, if you think that you are not able to give all you have, what are you going to do about it? The Bible teaches us to believe, repent, confess His name, and be baptized for the remission of our sins. To completely change the way we are prone to think and to surrender to Jesus completely. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by The Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.